And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So even if you're not an art historian, I'm guessing you've heard about a little piece of art in France called the Mona Lisa. Now, it is literally small, but it is figuratively large. It is probably the most famous piece of art in the world. Now, this wasn't always the case. As a matter of fact, its rise to superstardom was because of its theft. Yes, it was stolen in 1911 by Vincenzo Perugia, who decided, well, we'll get into that in a second. He had his reasons, and he walked into the Louvre, walked out with the Mona Lisa, and the rest is history. And that history, we're going to learn from our guest today, Noah Charney, who not only is an art historian, but he also specializes in the history of art theft. So who better to discuss the theft of the world's most famous art piece? Uh, we're going to get right into this because we got a lot to cover. Noah, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, so let's talk. Let's talk about your that book, The Thefts of the Mona sure. Lisa. And um, one thing was clear after reading. Well, actually, two things were clear. Noah, uh, number one, you don't like conspiracy theories, which is a shame because some are <laughs> super fun. Uh, some are destructive as well, but some are really fun. Uh, and two, you really don't like that most tourists don't know about the Mona Lisa. Uh, so hopefully we're going to change that. But we're not going to change that just yet because, you know, while the Mona Lisa is possibly one of the most is the most famous piece of, of art in maybe the history of mankind, we got to get we got more business. We got to get to Noah before we even scratch the surface of the Mona Lisa. And that is, you know, I could not believe this. And if I didn't see it with my own eyes, I would not believe it. But there are two Noah Charneys in the world. Uh, I first thought that one was your alter ego because on the website, there's no picture. It's kind of like Banksy. There's no picture of him anywhere. And I thought maybe you were moonlighting as, you know, an ecologist, a, a conservationist studying insects. But no, as a matter of fact, you just did an interview, uh, like a, a double interview with him two weeks ago. He exists. Um, and your birthdays are a day apart. He's a day older than you. Same month. Same year, you guys knew each other as juniors in college. You played a squash tournament. I think you guys both applied to the same college. Now you are a, you specialize in forgeries, uh, art forgeries. Is there any possibility that he it, you are in fact his human forgery, aka a clone? Is there any chance of this at all? That's a way better idea than the one I came up with. Yeah, it's totally true, and and it's funny because we even look similar enough that we could be like cousins. It's a really funny coincidence. Mm -hmm. And you're right, we just did an event together. But believe it or not, there's a third Noah Charney who's the same age, but we haven't met him yet. But we, it's like, maybe it's like Highlander. There can only be one in the end. <laughs> but he and I were just in touch because we totally hit it off and we said, maybe we should uh, do a book together. So that yeah. would be, come back on your show next time that comes out. That would be like a Matrix situation with yeah. written by Noah Charney and Noah Charney. You wouldn't <laughs> argue over who got first listing among the authors, at least that. <laughs> right, right. Well, I am in L.A. That's often the subject of contention. Uh, you know, so this is great. I was going to mention, you You spoiled my little surprise here, is that there's a third <laughs> Noah Charney, who I think is an investment banker uh, yeah. in New York, if I understand it correctly. There was this great documentary about triplets who were kind of separated at birth and they ended up finding each other later. I feel like you guys might be that there, there's like Noah Charney prime. There's Noah Charney alpha, Noah Charney beta. I'm not sure who's who, uh, but there's something weird going on. I do a whole other podcast about pop culture science. You guys might be the topic here uh, for one of our next episodes. I think there's something going on here, Noah. I would love that. That sounds really cool. Yeah, you know, you know, we were trying to exchange stories a little bit, and it's possible mm -hmm. that we are related, but 
Um, I had a funny origin story when my great grandfather came over from Belarus outside of Minsk in, I think it was 1904. And he mm -hmm. had um, a, a Russian sounding surname and he got to Ellis Island and he was trying to explain what his surname was, but the guy checking him in couldn't figure out um, what it was. And so he said what the word meant and he said mm -hmm. it in German. And he mm -hmm. said Schwartz, which means black. And so the guy wrote him down, oh, Schwartz is your surname. So my grandparents mm -hmm. were registered as, as Schwartz, and my father changed it back to an anglicized version of the original, which was probably Chornia or Cherny. So that may be getting oh. a little bit into the weeds, but so, <laughs> so they're Charnies, they're Irish Charnies, and they're like yeah. uh, Jewish-Russian Charnies, and we're not the Irish ones. But the, one of the Noah Charnies, <laughs> the ecologist is like one of these peeps, and then the investment yeah. banker, I think, is more on the Irish side based on at least the photos of him I've seen online. <laughs> that's so funny Not that's amazing ethnic profiling but just a little <laughs> no, no, no. i mean look there's there's everyone you know every group has their you know the physical characteristics right sure. i mean you know you're in uh eastern europe central eastern europe a lot of pale people there very very that's very true. pale people um, not a lot of sun there. Um, and speaking of, so you are in Slovenia, specifically uh, Ljubljana. I've screwed it up. <laughs> we were just practicing before. We were just I practicing. Actually, I used to live in Ljubljana. I live now Ljubljana. 25 minutes north in a town okay. called Kamnik, which is right in the Alps. And it's very beautiful. Looks oh, like wow. the end of the sound of music. Oh, that's cool. That's really amazing. Yeah, so you Ljubljana. That's that's pretty close. That was a capital city. So you got your I think you get your PhD from there. Uh, yeah. you have a master's degree in art history, PhD uh, from the University of Ljubljana. Are you still teaching there? I I'm weird pop professor. So I teach okay. for fun, believe it or not. That exists, but I don't teach full time anywhere. So I okay. have taught in the past um, at Yale, at American University of Rome, University of Ljubljana, but now I'm do, basically doing things like I do TV presenting and I'll do in one-off talks and I'll Got teach it. online courses, but I don't teach full-time anywhere, um, which is okay. good because you don't have any admin to worry about. Right. Or kids. I guess kids at that age are cool. I couldn't yeah, do they're, like they're, elementary they're, and high school. College I, don't, cool. I actually like the process of teaching. So the idea yeah. that I can do it for fun periodically is a big bonus for me. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so, well, so you're in that area. It was funny because I was looking up Slovenia just to get my geography correct, you know, and it was interesting because Italy's right there. And so Italy, it's so it really looks like a boot. I know that's stupid. I know that's a dumb observation. But when you look at it, it's like, wow, that really is a boot. North is Switzerland. Uh, west is France. And then the east is Slovenia. <laughs> so, but so, I mean, it's so many different cultures right there. Europe's pretty cool like that. You know, I never would have thought that Slovenia was on the eastern border of Italy. I just never made that connection. You know, Italians don't realize it either. <laughs> they're, they're, they're our neighbors. But I remember yeah. we, we went to, to uh, a doctor um, in Italy just a few years ago. And, um, mm -hmm. and my wife has a Slovenia ID, part of the EU and whatnot. It's been part of the, it's been an independent country since 1991, part of the EU mm -hmm. since 2004. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and they were looking to figure out how to enter her into the system at, at, the, at the doctor's office in Italy, and they couldn't find Slovenia, and they didn't know what it was. And then they finally realized it was still listed under Yugoslavia. And oh. so I think they're a little, a little, they're not quite sure who their neighbors are, but that's okay. We'll, we'll hide on, we'll hide behind the Alps, just hang out and be chill. It's all good. Someone should really update their database. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, all right. A couple quick, a couple things we got to get through here. No, two other right. things. So you are, are you an expert in symbology? Is that correct? I mean, like Harry, like Robert Langdon from the Dan Brown novels? So yes, but I'm going to throw you a little curveball because symbology okay. isn't actually a word. The word you're looking for is iconography. Symbology iconography. is written in the Dan Brown book. And okay, so, yeah, right, right. this is my thing in art history. So I'm a professor cool. of art history specializing in art crime. But when I study mm -hmm. art history and teach it, I like to teach iconography, which is the study of symbols in art. Icon uh, okay. in Greek means symbol. So, yes, but with a different term. I think he probably could have used iconography, but symbology sounded cooler. So he went with That's this sort cool. of invented word. But, yes, that's the thing that I'm into. 
Oh, that's fantastic. I love that. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I am a fan of those novels. And I it brings to light. Are you? Okay. Okay. good. Well, it brings to light just how much uh, how rich all of these things are, because we're so used to pictures, especially with Instagram and social media, especially where pictures are so boiled down to just disposable, very bite sized, consumable things that don't tell you much. But you know, when you're painting, when you're spending years painting an image, you're packing a lot into it. You have to, you know, and I don't know how much of the Da Vinci Code is based in truth, but I imagine Leonardo Da Vinci was putting, packing a lot of stuff into his, uh, into his paintings. So it's, yeah. it, I, I just love it. That much, that much is true. And I have to say that novel really inspired me to start writing. So I have no good things to say about it too. And you're right. Just to go back to your first point, the, um, mm. Today, we have such a tidal wave of images flooding us all the time that we tend to look at them very briefly and mm. cursely. There's almost a, a, a blink instinctual vision of them, and then you scroll on past. But back in the day, <laughs> yeah. images were something more precious, and they were meant to be engaged with and thought about over extended periods of time. So yes, all of the Renaissance artists really packed a lot of information in it, some of it more covert, some of it more overt. But I love the Da Vinci Code as a read. It mm-hmm. was what I watched, the Thomas Crown Affair, the Pierce Brosnan version, which got yeah. me interested in art theft, and the Da Vinci yeah. Code, and they came out right around the same time. And the yeah. Da Vinci Code, I wound up kind of doing a deconstructive reading to figure out what he was doing that made it so addictive to read. Mm-hmm. And in the process, I was trying to take notes on how I would write my own first novel, which came out shortly after. And in terms of pace and whatnot, it was inspired by that. The thing that I wow. didn't like was uh-huh. there are all sorts of factual errors in it mm-hmm. or kind of kooky theories that are stated as fact. And that's mm-hmm. not a problem in principle, except most readers thought it was all real. Yeah. And um, the, the, the way to approach that in a different way that I prefer is Steve Barry, who's a colleague mm-hmm. of mine. We're talking about doing a book together. And he mm-hmm. sells a similar number of books to Dan Brown. He also has um, their easy read um art adventure, slightly Indiana Jonesy um, mm-hmm. thrillers. And okay. every one of them is a New York Times bestseller, so he's doing very well. But what mm-hmm. he has at the end of each one is a little section about what he changed from known history to suit the plot. So there's no okay. way you could be fooled if you don't want to be. And I like that. So to me, that's a cool yeah. little addendum. Whereas the Dan Brown books, it feels like nobody's checking the facts. Mm-hmm. and. Yeah. For example, he cites in Inferno the organization I founded, ARCA, which is a research group, mm-hmm. and he has a few sentences about it. And the few sentences about it were exactly what we had on our website then. I was mm-hmm. like, I'm seeing the level of in-depth research <laughs> that, that is going on, but I appreciate the shout yeah. out. And the books yeah. are super fun. And he's laughing all yeah. the way to the bank, so hats off to him. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, it's also this other thing where, you know, I, I hate to break it to everyone listening, but the book is fiction. Uh, now, there was a book, I, I know that there was a famous lawsuit, it's like Holy Blood, Holy Grail, where they did do uh, research and they their book is allegedly factual and that he stole a lot of their story. That's a whole different issue. But at some point, as an author, you, if people in reading a fiction book are going to think that it's real, that's kind of on them. It is in yeah, the fiction section. I, I think that's fair enough. Absolutely. It's in the fiction section. Um, and what's interesting, the Holy Blood, Holy Grail is published as nonfiction, but it turns yeah. out a lot of that was made up too. So it's yeah. kind of like this fiction, nonfiction hybrid. But yeah, Gray he area. did borrow a lot of the stories and twists from it. So yeah, yeah. it's like it's like um, reader be warned, you're in the fiction section. But part yeah. of it, part of what appealed, I think, is that you wrote it in such a way. It's like I had this amazing secret. And nobody knows about it except the 47 million people reading my book right now. <laughs> I'm going to tell it to you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it turns out that it's, that it's bogus, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah. There are also little yeah. details that didn't seem to benefit the plot, but that mm-hmm. sort of make you itch if you know the right answer. So, for example, mm-hmm. he's got a scene in The mm-hmm. Da Vinci Code where somebody takes the Mona Lisa off the wall and is like holding it up between them and some security guards. And he describes that the person holding it, their shoulder is poking through the canvas, like protruding through the canvas, so it's bulging out. Well, the painting's done on panel, a wooden panel. Does it matter to the plot? I mean, not really, but it's like somebody saying, like, you know, the capital of the United States is Des Moines. 
and then <laughs> but nobody knows and, it's a secret. and then if you know it's a little yeah, yeah. bit annoying so it drove scholars nuts but you yeah. know you have to take it with a grain of salt Sure, sure. Well, and you are one of those scholars. I mean, I, you know, working in film and and television, it is funny when you talk to experts who, I, I mean, look, when I see people shoot guns, it drives me nuts because there's no kick. They hold the gun out straight, a poof of smoke, a loud bang, their arm goes nowhere. It's like, well, have you ever shot a gun? That's how it works. Yeah, but there's all these little things, right, where experts kind of get, uh, you know, get in the weeds. Um, but, uh, yeah. Hey, it, I remember there was one great thing. Um, it was never, you know, never let truth get in the way of a go- of fiction. Or Wait, that's I'm missing. In the way of a good story. Have a good story. Thank you. I'm screwing up everything today. Um, <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for correcting me. Well, so um, one, you know, one last thing here. This is this is probably outside of the Noah Charney is my was my favorite factoid. This is another factoid that I think probably is an easy number two. You were an expert on ancient aliens. Now, uh, I, so I, I, so first of all, well, so first of all, I want to know how an expert in art theft and, you know, uh, iconography is how you ended up on the show. But number two, it made me go back and look because I actually, this other podcast I do is with Dr. Michael Denon, who is a, consummate expert on that. He's always on that show. Um, and I've interviewed several people from that show. So I went through and I made a list. You are technically the 13th expert from ancient aliens that I've interviewed. And I have two others in the already in the pipeline for the future. Um, one's an insect expert. So the, the, not in the UFO world, even though I do love that world and two other people I have interviewed for other shows or that I've met uh, in some sort of creative basis. So you're number 13. It seems weird. You got embarrassed, but you're joining a very, uh, I mean, a respectful and honorable group here. You should be proud. A lucky 13. I'll take it. You know, it's, it's, I think the UFO stuff the, the, is so much more fascinating than what they put on the show. And that's maybe my only objection. But I, yeah. I do, I host like maybe one or two TV programs a year or I'm a talking head. So I get mm-hmm. semi-regularly invited to these things. And that one, I remember I went down, I went down and I said, I'll come on if I don't have to talk about aliens. And we were just talking about <laughs> the, the story of Leonardo da Vinci and they got other people yeah. to do the alien parts. So that, that yeah. much was okay. But yes, yeah, some, <laughs> some of the credit, that's the only credit that's like a little, I'm not sure how cool that is, but it's um, cool. Yeah. I mean, the UFO stuff, especially the more recent things that have come out are so much more fascinating than the like new agey kooky stuff that at least in the past used to be on the show. And so yeah. I, I'm, I like, um, I, I have to say, I like conspiracy theories Mm-hmm. If I don't know a different answer that seems much more plausible and equally interesting, that's what I'm going to say about conspiracy theories. So okay. if the same thing can be explained in a way that seems plausible and it's mm-hmm. just as interesting as the conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. then then I prefer that. Otherwise, like, you know, I like I like the kooky headline stories. I just um. <laughs> yeah, you, you're right. There's a little bit of a tone in my chapter of my Mona Lisa book. I was like, all right, people. Like, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You made it loud and clear. I, look, I mean, I can understand that because you're going through a lot. And also, you know, uh, we'll get into this a little bit, but um, art theft is really interesting because the perception is that it's high level crime, uh, doesn't happen very often, and it's, you know, uh, beyond white collar. You know, I mean, the Thomas Crown Affair is a perfect example of what I think most people think of when they think of art crime. Now, I actually have done episodes on art crime before, believe it or not. Uh, I've talked to a PI who recovers art. Uh, I covered Rose Dugdale. She stole several Vermeers. Uh, and the Gardner theft, which is, mm-hmm. I think, one of the, it's still an unsolved mystery. You know, I yeah. think the largest amount ever. Um, but we're yeah. going to talk about the Mona Lisa, which that may have been, you know, I think the highest amount of art financially, monetarily speaking, but Mona, nothing compares to the Mona Lisa. And what happened here made Mona Lisa a star. I mean, you know, getting stolen. But uh, this is, it's funny because you talk, you know, the book that you did, I think it was supposed to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the theft, which happened in 1911. But lots of stuff has happened to the Mona Lisa. I'll just quickly, I'm just going to do broad strokes. You fill in the the gaps here. Uh, But, you know, in 1956, Mona Lisa was attacked twice in that year, sprayed with acid, damaging part of the lower part of it. Um, After being restored, a Bolivian threw a rock at the painting, hitting the elbow. 
1974, the Mona Lisa went on tour in Tokyo, sprayed with red paint to protest museum policy for disabled visitors. Uh, It's always the target for some kind of protest for some reason. But at the time, I believe, and now it was in in a climate controlled, bulletproof, you know, earthquake proof glass case. Um, And then 2009, uh, a Russian woman threw a newly purchased teacup (laughs) at the painting for her not allowing citizenship. 2022, a man dressed as a woman in a wheelchair smashed cake all over the Mona Lisa. And just, uh, I think, maybe the day after you and Noah Charney Prime did your whole presentation, um, two protesters threw soup at the painting to uh, in protest of unsustainable food production, wasting p- pumpkin soup. Hopefully it was, sustained, uh, it was sustainably processed. So for some reason, Noah... Mona Lisa gets a lot of heat, man. She's taken a lot of hits for people's protest. Why is that? What's going on here? Well, the main reason is it's so iconic. It's by far the most famous artwork in the world. And Mm -hmm. so when people want to get headlines and they feel frustrated that people aren't paying attention to them, they want to do something that is going to make the world sit up and take notice. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, some climate activists whose cause I sympathize with Um, but I don't sympathize with the way that they're trying to get attention, have been deciding to try to deface famous works of art, which is neither here nor there in terms of of, um, getting anything done except um, probably making the same liberal people who would support their cause think Mm -hmm. that they're acting in in very destructive ways and and disliking them. Um, But Mona Lisa as a target, you know, you want to pick something to attack that's going to get headlines. It's a good choice of an inanimate object the only parallel I might have is some people who have attacked um, and tried yeah. to kill presidents, like mm. Ronald Reagan, mm. when um, the, the guy tried to kill him to, to get Jodie Foster's attention um, mm. back in, I guess it was, it was the early 1980s. Um, yeah. And the, it's an equivalent of that. It's an inanimate object that is guaranteed to get headlines if something happens to it. And yeah. so these days, you know, you can attack it as much as you want, it's going to be fine. If there's a nuclear yeah. war, it's going to be the Mona Lisa and cockroaches yeah. left on the planet, yeah. and that's it. It's, it's oh, very well God. protected. But, um, but yeah, yeah, it's this iconic status, um, and, and unfortunately it makes it a target. Yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it is interesting because, you know, you talk about people assessing presidents, you know, John Lennon, um, MLK, Robert Kennedy, JFK. I mean, mean, a lot of these were for political reasons, not necessarily, which I guess is the same with protests. But there's an interesting line between assassinating someone and then damaging artwork. But um, but it's all for the same reason. It's actually funny. We've come so far because the reason why people do that is to get the spotlight, to be to make headlines, to have their name next to that event. And we've stopped. Com- we've completely stopped publishing people's names. I mean, I was just watching the Super Bowl, and most people may not know this, but there was a streaker who ran through. We don't even. They're not even Tony Romo, who's the who's the announcer, mentioned it, and then quickly said, "Well, we're not supposed to talk about it." So we can't even talk about men running across the field naked, much less you know throwing soup at them. And at least, actually, when that happened, they put up um, these cloth barriers, so you couldn't even see the people. You couldn't see the. You just knew it happened, but we're pulling that attention away. And I think that that's a smart thing to do. It's a very smart thing to do, because um, if you do it long enough and consistently enough, then people will Mm -hmm. figure out it's no longer a way to get attention. Well, a parallel to that in the study of art theft is if um, media refuse to publish the estimated value of works of art that were stolen, criminals would have no idea what they have is worth. And that would be good. That would be useful. There's an example of a theft of a painting that was previously attributed to Caravaggio from a museum Mm -hmm. in Odessa, Ukraine. um, Many is probably 20 years ago now. And the headline, because the clickbait headline was $100 million Caravaggio stolen from Odessa, which sounds Mm -hmm. like, you know, it sounds very intriguing. Um, But nobody bothered to check that, you know, among art historians, Nobody thought it was by Caravaggio anymore because there had been a little esoteric um, <laughs> academic article that proved that it yeah. wasn't. It's by one of his followers. So what it should have yeah. said is, you know, hundred thousand dollar copy after a Caravaggio stolen. Um, mm. But that's not as good a headline. But here's yeah. the thing: criminals don't know how much stuff is worth, so they're yeah. holding up a copy of the New York Times saying, "Look, it's worth a hundred million." Therefore, yeah. I figure I can get in the rough estimate that criminals think they can get for stolen art is about seven to 10% of its estimated legitimate value. 
So that's saying, okay, let's say I can get seven million for this on the black market, even though it's worth a hundred million. Yeah. Instead, if the headlines had done their homework, they would say, okay, maybe I can get seven thousand for this instead of seven million because it's actually only worth a wow. hundred thousand. So here is a chance if they did a blackout on prices, yeah. then I think it would uh, <laughs> it would be effective. I have to, I didn't know that they took such a bath. I, I mean, that's a 93% reduction in value. I yeah. mean, when you drive a car off the lot, it's still worth 50% of its value. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but like, wow, well, you he, steal he, a painting. Here's the, thing, the, the tricky part is there really is no market for art that you recognize as stolen. And the okay. idea we have of criminal art collectors and mm -hmm. professional art thieves is mm -hmm. almost exclusively from fiction and film. We know of very few real-life cases, but criminals watch the same movies we do, hopefully read the same books. We do. I'm not sure that's being generous, but they like watching the same movies, and they are yeah. learning about the art world through fiction and film. So they yeah. think they're going to find a Dr. No-type criminal art collector, and when they realize that they can't find one, they don't usually have a plan B. Right, right. So sometimes it works yeah. to our advantage, but they keep on mm. stealing, thinking there's a market for it. And then yeah. how do we know this estimated value? Well, there have been police who go undercover in sting operations to try to recover stolen art. Okay. Stolen art recovered usually through paid criminal informants who are on the payroll of police departments, effectively ratting out other criminals because mm. criminals like to brag if they have famous art. It's considered high quality um, high quality crime, a cool thing to do, has been since the Victorian era. And then they pose as criminal collectors, these police undercover. And, mm -hmm. and then we get a report of how much they were asked to pay for the work relative to its legitimate value. And it seems to be about okay. seven to 10 percent. And then, you know, the more famous the work is, the harder it is to sell. And right. so criminals can get desperate and occasionally they fall for policemen disguised as criminal collectors. Yeah, you know, the thing that makes it, I mean, you know, the, the whole, the crime of it, obviously, uh, is something that you're not going to like. But the thing that really gets me is how they would treat the, the art, right? You don't know, these aren't, these aren't, they're not conservationists, they're not art lovers, they're not art historians, you know, it's just a thing that's worth money to them. And, but it, it's a cultural icon. These are things that have significant value, um, you know, and the Mona Lisa's <laughs> number one on that now. Uh, so let, let's, let's get into that for a second. So, uh, you know, you mentioned you don't like when tourists don't know about the Mona Lisa. Let's give them just a little taste here. I want to start with Da Vinci. Because it's interesting because in the book, I, I learned that, number one, da Vinci was notorious for not finishing his projects. The Mona Lisa may be one that he didn't finish. Maybe he, he finished it. Uh, I mean, before he died, you said that he was quoted as saying he regretted never completing a single work. Quote's probably a strong word, maybe paraphrase, uh, as saying he regretted never completing a single work. So that's super interesting. And you know, I learned in your book that there are several other Mona Lisas out there, probably either very good 16th century reproductions or works done by his followers using the original Mona Lisa as their model, if I understand it correctly. So correct that if it's wrong and tell me a little bit about what makes the Mona Lisa so special. So what makes the Mona Lisa post special has a lot to do with the hype that surrounded Leonardo and then the fact that okay. it was stolen. It was always considered one of the great Renaissance portraits, but not anything more special than, say, um, Leonardo's Lady with an Ermine, which okay. to me is a superior painting, or Raphael's Lady with a Unicorn. Um, it's among the great Renaissance portraits, but there was a real cult of Leonardo, and that began thanks to a book by Giorgio Vasari, who is considered the godfather of art history. I have a book about him called Collector of Lives. And he wrote the first really big art history book, perhaps the first official art history book. In 1550, it was published. And it helped effectively make the modern way that we think about how museums are curated, how the art history world works, um, which artists are the best. These are largely based on Vasari's ideas hundreds of years ago. For example, the Ninja Turtles, Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo, and then Donatello lived a, a generation earlier than the others. The fourth one should be Titian, but I'm going off track here. That these are the epitome of great art, that Florentine Renaissance yeah. was the epitome. This is thanks to Vasari. And his promotion of Leonardo 
was translated into many languages and it really helped this cult around Leonardo come to the fore because Leonardo himself had, basically was an artist as a part-time job or a hobby. He earned most mm. of his money performing music. He was one okay, of the most famous yeah. musicians in Europe um, and yeah. as a military engineer. And he didn't do a lot of paintings. Wow. But the Mona Lisa, part of what made it famous also is the fact that it was acquired by Francis I, the King of France, after mm. Leonardo passed away from his estate. Um, and it was an iconic work in the French royal collection and much copied. And then we have the fact that it was stolen. But until it was stolen, it was only one of the many famous Renaissance portraits, and Leonardo's name was more famous than any one of his works. And then it gets stolen in 1911. And this is relatively early in the international news era, but this made international headlines. And it made international headlines for a sustained amount of time, because from the mm -hmm. time it was stolen to the time it was recovered was yeah. about two years. And it really wasn't kicked out of the headlines until the Titanic sank and took over people's <laughs> imagination. This was like right. a play-by-play -play whodunit that was constantly in the news, and it was in the yeah. world news. And from that point on, it really became fixed as the most famous artwork in the world. Well, I can't help, but as you're explaining this, I can't help but, but see parallels to Kim Kardashian, right? Because okay. there seems to be a strange cult around Kim Kardashian, you know, she didn't really become popular until the sex tape came out. Until then, she was really just someone who hung around, you know, made her money being beautiful, you know, uh, you know, so something beautiful to look at, but with no real substance as a friend of Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie during The Simple Life. Uh, but then, you know, the sex tape happens, her show comes out, The Kardashians, and then all of a sudden, she is you know, famous for being famous. And that's kind of what the Mona Lisa is. The Mona Lisa is famous for being famous because, you know, you hear things about like the eyes follow you around, the types of, you know, uh, the brush strokes are very cutting edge for art. You have these types of technological, quote unquote, advancements in art, but it really is just famous for being famous. Uh, not that it's not a beautiful portrait, one of the best portraits of the Renaissance, much like Kim Kardashian is, you know, an all time beauty. But what is she really contributing to society? I think this is a brilliant analogy. And if you put it in your next book, you have to put me on the, as a co-author. I've got a footnote you at least, right? At least, at least footnote me <laughs> or, or face the legal consequences. <laughs> but but I think that that, you know, it, it feels similar to me. And this this art theft, you know, the theft of the Mona Lisa is really interesting because you mentioned that, you know, Francois the first bought all the collections after Leonardo died. He kind of came, you know, he came over from Italy, was hanging out in France as I mean, kind of like, you know, the, Francois the first's artist in residence, really. I mean, he's yes, kind of hanging exactly. out, drawing stuff, right? And so when he died, he got everything. And that's how France got it. Napoleon was involved, but he's kind of, you know, put it in his private collection, and then it became the Louvre and all that. But that the misunderstanding of where the Mona Lisa came from is really the genesis for this theft. Because the theft happens, uh, I want to try to, let's try to do this in, in order here. So there's a man um, whose name Vincenzo uh, Perugia, if I'm, I'm I, I rolled the R a little, Perugia, I didn't, I, yeah. I went Spanish, not Italian, Perugia, he believes that Napoleon, you know, sacked Italy and stole the Mona Lisa. And he, this is one of the motive, alleged motivations for why he stole the Mona Lisa and that he wants to bring it back uh, you know, repatriate it to Italy. That That is his motivation. And it's just context at the time. That's those his motivation. But at the time, the Louvre is extraordinarily easy to steal from. People, you know, I think there were headlines that, you know, uh, you wake the guards if they fall asleep type of thing. And, you know, people are I think there were caricatures of people just putting stuff underneath their coat. This is bananas to me. <laughs> but that was the environment. The, this is not some Thomas Crown affair or, you know, uh, sneaking into Alcatraz type of, you know, event. This is it's not prison break. This is you walk in, you take it, you walk out. And two years later, it's hidden for two years. It's crazy to me, Noah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really funny time. So alarms had been invented, but they were very <laughs> <Not> irregularly used, <laughs> used yeah. and they would go off at the wrong time. So it wasn't really yeah. a thing yet. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the Louvre was locked down at night, mm-hmm. but during the day, you have to provide access to people, and you'd have statues on tables or on plinths with no protective vitrine. Um, you mm-hmm. would have works of art hung on the wall but not locked there, not bolted in any way. And there were, it was in the media that, you know, one of these days somebody's going to steal the Mona Lisa because, you know, um, it's the security so lax. And mm-hmm. um, someone who was um, actually wound up writing to a newspaper to complain that he hadn't been able to steal the Mona Lisa, someone else had gotten there first, was regularly <laughs> stealing from the Louvre. I don't know, maybe you may want to circle back and we'll talk about him, but he was he sure. wrote to, to complain that, you know, now this guy's funking up my groove because now they're going to be <laughs> more secure than it was before. But he was literally popping in. There's a quote that he once said to his yeah. girlfriend, honey, I'm going to the Louvre. Do you want anything? <laughs> and she thought he meant the shopping arcade that's next to the museum, but he right. meant the actual museum itself. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. That is so funny. I didn't know that. Yeah, we, we may circle. We're going to circle back. There's a side story here we're going to get to. Um, but because there, there's really two things. You've got the, the theft and then you've got the police chase and they're in parallel We'll try to, We might have to do one then the other, because I think the theft is shockingly simple very quick. Uh, and I mean, I don't even know if any planning really even had to go into it because, the, and, and the true irony here is that Vicento was brought onto the Louvre. So he was kind of like a third party contractor. And if I understand it correctly, he was there to build, they, they had recently decided that they were going to start protecting artwork. I believe probably after one of, uh, an attack on one of the, I think there were two other, pieces of art that were attacked or damaged and they were like, Hey, we should probably do something about this. So they brought in people to secure like 1600. You can get, if I'm getting this wrong, let me know. Um, 1600 pieces of art. And he, so he was there to build devices to protect art. And that's how he gains access. And he essentially goes in there early one morning. There aren't a lot of guards around. He pulls the thing off the wall, goes down a, uh, you know, a, a fire, not a fire escape, but like a, a back stairwell, mm-hmm. drops the frame off, gets locked in the stairwell. And this is where t- there's two stories. I-, I think in your book, he tries to handle, breaks the doorknob off. A plumber comes down and lets him out. And uh, in the documentary, I think you mentioned, uh, uh, I have the name of it. It's it's escaping me right now. Um, but there's a great documentary, which I will mention the name of in a second. He actually gets locked in the stairwell and then comes back out and takes the Mona Lisa, puts his smock over it, and then walks out the front door. Either way is super bold. But that's kind of it. That's the theft. I mean, in a yeah. nutshell, right? Yeah. So, so it, you, you had it almost completely right. He worked for okay. a company with subcontracting. <laughs> Yeah, subcontract by the Louvre to make protective glass cases over his most famous works because um, uh, an Angra painting had been attacked by an anarchist and they were afraid Mm -hmm. that other works would be targeted. So, yeah, this was basically a crime of opportunity because he found himself. He was an Italian expat in Paris. He was an amateur painter, a mandolin enthusiast, uh, and he (laughs) decided that, yeah, you got it. You got got to do something. You got to fit that in there. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and he saw that he had access to, to the Louvre, so he basically hid overnight from a Sunday to a Monday um, and waited for guards to walk away again. When the museum wasn't open, there weren't that many guards on duty. They would just do their rounds, and he snuck out. Um, well, and this is yeah. the same, and that's the, well, I don't mean to interrupt you here, but just so people can get a sense, this is the exact same technique that um, the wet bandits use in Home Alone, where the, or Home Alone 2, where they stay overnight in Duncan's toy chest to then rob it the next day. So this is not unheard I like, of. I like what you're doing. You know, I once wrote an article about how museums are secured based on Home Alone. So I'm totally <laughs> right that we're on the same wavelength here. The, we got the it. home yeah, alone yeah. answers everything. So yeah, so he sneaks out when he hears the footfalls disappearing down the corridor. He takes the Mona Lisa off the wall, brings it to a service stairwell, removes it from its cumbersome frame, wraps it in a white sheet and heads down. And his plan is to leave the stairwell, cross what's called the Court of the Sphinx and disappear into early morning. But he tries the door and it's locked. But he had tools with him. So he tried to remove the doorknob and figured maybe that would pop the latch. He puts the doorknob in his pocket, tries to open the door, it's still locked. He seems to have thought of trying to remove the whole door from its hinges, but figured it would be too noisy. And as he's trying to figure this out, he hears footfalls coming down the stairs. And it was a night janitor. 
and we have no record of what the janitor thought, but I guess he didn't think too much of the fact that someone had a Mona Lisa-shaped package wrapped in a white sheet under his right. arm, and he opened the door for him, and he yeah. disappeared to early morning Paris, and there was an eyewitness at the shopping arcade next door who remembers mm -hmm. someone in the early morning walking out of the museum on a day that it was closed, wearing mm -hmm. a Louvre worker's uniform, and throwing something over his shoulder as he walked away, and the police found that it was the doorknob. So it's okay. this crazy moment, and then it's not seen again for two years. So that is what happened. So he was let out. He didn't walk back through the. He was museum. let out. I mean, that that's what my research showed. But you know, okay, uh, the the documentary is also very good. So it's it's possible that there are two different versions of the story, and we don't really know which is true. Right, and that's it's called Mona Lisa Missing: The Man Who Stole the Masterpiece. It's actually on YouTube. I'll put a link to it. Uh, just a fabulous documentary, uh, and, and it's it's interesting because in that documentary, they you know they talk about how uh, it's great because the documentary filmmaker his name's uh, Joe Medeiros. Uh, yeah, so he goes to Italy to, to talk to Vincenzo's daughter, who it's great because it's this great moment where he goes to ask her the story, and it turns out that she, that she didn't even know him. He died at her feet, had a heart attack, and this tragic moment, he realized, oh, she didn't even know him at all. We flew to Italy for, uh -huh. <laughs> for this, this story that wasn't. Uh, it's fantastic. It's still a great documentary. Uh, but, you know, this is, you know, and, they, and in that documentary, if you want to know um, – ideas as to how and why his motivation for stealing the Mona Lisa. They give lots, which includes mercury poisoning and affecting his prefrontal cortex. There's a lot, a lot that goes on there, which we won't go into. So let's talk. So the Mona Lisa is gone. I mean, this essentially this caper is pulled off with um, a hitch or two, but Vincenzo disappears into the night. Everyone's called onto the scene much later than you would think. Uh, I believe the everyone saw that the painting was missing, but everyone just thought, oh, hey, the local, the photographer, the museum photographer is checking it out and taking pictures of it. It's fine. It wasn't until hours later that even the alarm was raised and then it was locked down, which is the absolute epitome of closing the barn doors after the horses are gone. Uh, so what happens? Give me cliff notes here. Uh, what happens sure. immediately following the, their you know, recognition that it's been stolen. So I'm, I'm sure there was an oh shit moment. I'm, am I allowed to say that on your podcast? <laughs> sure. Okay. You can swear as long as it's comedic. That's I'll, I'll okay. allow it as long okay. as it's funny. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and there was a lockdown. And then arriving on the scene was this, um, at the time, quite famous uh, prefect of police called Louis Lupin, who was um, known for, um, you know, being a strike breaker, and um, one of the more advanced people in terms of uh, operations uh, and um, criminal investigation, things like forensics, he was quite a pioneer. But this was one that really had him stumped. So he locked down. He interviewed everyone with Louvre access. And he interviewed Vincenzo Perugia twice. Two and times. it doesn't seem like he ever <laughs> suspected him. And now, yeah. to be honest, he may not have suspected him because... Um, there was, a, there was a, essentially a sort of um, ethnic prejudice among the mm. French against Italian immigrants at the time. And so it may have been the assumption that um, an Italian wouldn't be able to pull this off. Um, mm. But, you know, he had no leads. There were various theories. Um, the assumption was that it had already left France. Maybe there was some foreign power who took it trying to get revenge at, um, at France. But um, it was a huge scandal because it was very enthusiastically covered in magazines and newspapers, particularly the liberal ones that used it as a way to basically make fun of the conservative French government. So it was repeated constantly. All the details were covered. And um, it was really relentless. And it broke out international news. And so there was a lot of pressure put on. And um, it ruined the career of the director of the Louvre at the time, who had to resign, um, this police prefect. And um, along the way, they were grasping at straws, and one of the straws they grasp at is they wound up apprehending Pablo Picasso and his mm -hmm. best friend, the Polish poet Guillaume Apollinaire, mm -hmm. on suspicion of having stolen the Mona Lisa. 
Now you have to tell me, do you want me to go? And no. Do so let's, 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 I'm going to stop you there. Yeah. Cause we're okay. going to, uh, we're awesome. going to pre at the bone. We're going to do a bonus episode on the Pablo Picasso as art thief side story here. So check that out in, in the audio feed here, but this is a great place to just pause you for a moment because you're talking about the media. This is right when, you know, global news is really coming into the, into the forefront so much so. So this is this this factoid is will tell you all you need to know about what was going on and how no one really knew what the Mona Lisa was until this theft. The Washington Post published the wrong photo of the Mona Lisa when they were describing <laughs> this particular theft. So in no way, shape, I mean, that wouldn't happen now. That's silly. I mean, it's it's unfathomable now. But at the time, they were like, oh, yeah, this is probably it. And boom, went up. <laughs> in case you've yeah, seen, quality you know, journalism. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it was it was not the household name that it was after the theft. That was that was the main thing. This is what shifted it from one among the very famous, beautiful Renaissance portraits, if you were yeah. into Renaissance art already, into something yeah. that was iconic. Um, and yeah, we will go back in the bonus to talk about Picasso, but we're going to skip <laughs> yeah. that now. And yeah, if we yeah. fast forward a little bit, um, yeah. the investigation went nowhere. And then suddenly, two years later, this Florentine art dealer gets um, a telegram, and it says that it's from someone who has the Mona Lisa and would like to return it, and would this guy come and meet him? And at this point, it was old news. He figured this was surely a prank, but, you know, why not follow it up just in case? And so he brings the director of the Uffizi Museum in Florence, and the two of them go to a hotel and meet Vincenzo Perugia, and he pulls a suitcase out from under his bed, and he pops it open, and it's got a false bottom on it, and inside is the Mona Lisa. And they tried to, you know, keep a straight face, and they said, this looks like the real thing, but can we take it to the Uffizi Museum for conservators to make sure it's real and it's not damaged? He said, no problem. And he was very surprised that the next knock on his door is the police arresting him. Because Perugia <laughs> seems to have thought that he would be welcomed as a hero yeah. repatriating this famous painting. Because as you mentioned earlier, he was under the mistaken impression that it had been looted from Italy during the Napoleonic campaigns. That's a pretty good guess because there were literally millions of objects taken during the Napoleonic era, um, tens of thousands certainly from Italy, um, and many things still in the Louvre today were looted by Napoleon, but this wasn't one of them. And there's some thought that he may have, once he stole it, tried to think of a way to sell it to perhaps a wealthy American collector mm -hmm. But there's no evidence that he tried more than considering it because he probably realized that he didn't have the connections or the infrastructure to do that. And so eventually he repatriated. Why did it take two years? Well, the good thing about this case is we have his court records and court records thankfully survive um, better than other documents tend to. And so we have his explanation, at least his side of the story. And he says that he was captured by Mona Lisa in this sort of reverse Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome is, is when um, a hostage falls in love with a person who's holding them hostage. Here it's the opposite. Here the person holding the work hostage falls in love with this object. He says yeah. he was obsessed with it. He would do nothing. He was you know, not being social. He would come home from work and just take the painting out and stare at it. And he thought that he would drive himself crazy if he didn't return it. So two years later, he returns it, is arrested, goes on trial. Um, it makes, of course, more international headlines. Let me, let me, I want to pause you here just for a second, sure. if I can, for the trial, because a couple. I want to paint in. You know, I'm the Leonardo here, and I want to paint us a full, full picture here on this canvas, because there are a couple just small details that I think are are, are so great. Uh, num number one, when they were do during the investigation, uh, while they're looking through this, they realized that it must have been an insider job because the Mona Lisa was pulled off. It, it's not like when you hang something in your house where it's just on a nail. And there's like a line of wire in the back. They didn't. They did it a little differently back then. It was very complex. And I think it was determined that someone with knowledge could pull this off in seconds. Someone without knowledge navigating that, you know, attachment mechanism uh, would take five minutes. So that was. I thought that that was that was really interesting. And you know, when they were um, when the Mona Lisa was gone, they ended up reopening the Louvre, and they. That empty space was a star attraction. So the the painting that wasn't there brought in tons of people. Uh, I, I thought that was really great. And then when um, when they when uh, Perugia 
gives the, uh, you know, when he's back in Italy and he says, hey, here's the Mona Lisa, I'm a hero. They take it to be verified. And the way they do it, if I understand this correctly, uh, there's a term for it. You're going to know it if I can find it quickly. I cannot. It's where they basically look at the cracks in the oil paint over time and are able, like a fingerprint, to determine that, oh, yeah, this is that Mona Lisa. Uh, that is, really, that's really cool. So I, I don't need any comments on any of those, those three things. So the, the term you're looking for is crackler, which is a French word. And it refers, <laughs> that's to, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah, refers yeah. to this wet of cracks that happen in oil paint when it dries yeah. and when the support it's on expands and contracts due to changes yeah. in humidity over time. And basically this is the thing that's hardest for forgers to replicate Mm -hmm. um, because they have to make something that was painted recently look sometimes centuries old. So if the crackler looks authentic, then it's safe to say that the work is of the correct age. Um, there isn't a way to identify uniquely, or at least there wasn't at that stage through the crackler that this is the painting, but now they can do it. Mm. Now you have these you know, microscopes and the level of photography that you can look right. at a tiny corner and match it to a photo of that tiny corner taken from the original. Um, so the, some of the things that they can do today are absolutely incredible. And that's one of the breakthroughs yeah. also that you mentioned earlier with some of these copies of the Mona Lisa and determining whether they might have been painted by Leonardo or in his presence or um, if they were copied after the final was made. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy story, the fact that they... Um, didn't get anywhere with the investigation. The fact that they interviewed the um, actual thief twice and never mm -hmm. suspected him. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was a total bungle, but mm -hmm. it was almost comical, especially in retrospect. I think it would make a great um, comedic caper film rather than a <laughs> dynamic heist drama. Well, the other thing is that, you know, you know, talk, uh, talking about these cracklers, uh, which is a fantastic the professional name. Uh, there's also the fact that like he, he had they had his fingerprints on the mm -hmm. on the case. They had, a, I think it was a left thumbprint of Perugia mm -hmm. on the on the actual glass. And they, they had fingerprints at the time. So everyone yeah. was fingerprinted. So they had, a, you know, they had the information that they needed, but it was all analog. So you would have to go through the, I think they had tens of thousands of fingerprints yeah. at the time in order to do that, which, I mean, that's really a situation where the theory is way ahead of the technology because exactly. it works. Sure. It's, it's awesome, yeah. but you kind of have to digitize everything because you'd have to be, I mean, the man hours to put in. So they didn't do that, but I mean, it was right there. You know what I mean? Like it was right at their fingertips. It literally, and, and this is one of the, the, my parallel interests because in addition to studying art history, I wound up studying criminology to, to, to look at mm. art crime from various mm. aspects is um, this is early on in the use of fingerprinting. Fingerprinting was, uh, was established um, by uh, French detectives. And yes, it was good to have, but first you had to arrest someone to get their fingerprints the first time so they would be on file. And then you right. literally had to do an eyeball comparison with a magnifying glass. And so mm -hmm. it just it's, it's not feasible. There also was the rationale that, yes, he did work for a company that had mm -hmm. been subcontracted to, to work with the Louvre, and so it's yeah. not implausible that someone who wasn't the thief was working with um, the Mona Lisa and that their fingerprints would be there. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. The concept was way ahead of the technical logistics. Now yeah. you take a digital picture of it and a computer does all the work for you. But back then, just imagine thousands of fingerprints and you have to have a magnifying glass and compare each one at a time. It just wasn't really feasible. I mean, now we have biometrics. You know, I had a computer that I unlocked with my thumb. You can unlock your phone with your thumb. I mean, yeah. our fingerprints are all over everywhere, whether we want them to be or not. Uh, one last thing here, and this is such a product of promotion, is that the the hotel where uh, Perugia was staying in was called uh, the Tripoli Italia. The Hotel Tripoli Italia. And after it was <laughs> after this, they called it the Gioconda, uh, which is means the Mona Lisa. That's Italian for Mona Lisa. And then they put a Mona Lisa in their lobby to fully capitalize on this event that happened in their, <laughs> in, in I their hotel. I would have done that too if it were my hotel. 
<laughs> well, get a little PT Barnum in you. You have to, right? I mean, you got to get people yeah. there. All right. So now let's okay. Let's go back to the trial. So uh, he's he's caught. He's surprised. He's shocked. And you know he's put on trial. They have the Mona Lisa. Uh, so what what happens here? Because this is things get a little weird here too. So he goes on trial, um, and he convinces people that he really meant well, that he thought he would be welcomed as a hero, that he never intended to do anything except bring it back to Italy. Um, and he's so convincing over the course of this trial that um, at the end, the judge gives him a sentence that is actually less time than he had already spent in prison waiting for the trial and for the trial to be completed. So he was released immediately. And he was considered something of a folk hero then. This is a time, you have to remember, where France was considered uh, far more advanced economically, Mm -hmm. um, and Italy was sort of uh, an economic backwater at the time. They had this amazing cultural history, but um, the, the country was was not doing particularly well and was effectively looked down upon, especially by France. And so this was something of a a Robin Hood situation where this is an Italian worker goes to Paris to try to rescue um, a a remnant of Italy's uh, historical greatness that it's lost at the moment. So it's a good story to sell. Um, The Mona Lisa goes back uh, to Paris. Um, It was on display briefly in Italy. And then, yeah, back in Paris and then well, hold on, hold on. Let's let's not. Pa- no, I don't pause one thing here because when sure. it's in Italy on display, it's so popular that I think thirty thousand people saw it in a week. Yeah. So I yeah. mean, that was a, it was a big deal. Um, it was a huge to, to, deal. It's like a yeah. war hero coming home, right? And that's that. These days, you have blockbuster exhibitions that get that many people, but yeah. uh, the logistics are totally different. Thinking about it, you know, hundred plus years ago, that was a huge amount of people to come see something. Yeah. And, and so uh, anyway, I didn't mean to pause you there. So then it goes back sure, to, yeah. uh, to France. So it's back in France. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the coda to the story is that from that point on, or rather from the moment it was stolen, it became the iconic image um, when you think of art. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly when you think of um, the Louvre Museum, when you think mm-hmm. of Paris, you probably think of the Eiffel Tower and Mona Lisa. And it has this iconic status that makes people want to say they've seen it. Mm-hmm. But how many people actually look at it in any depth and how many people know anything more than it was made by Leonardo da Vinci and it was stolen? That's another mm-hmm. question. And it's something right. that I later describe as a sort of invisible icon, something mm-hmm. everybody thinks they know about, but actually they know very little and how much more interesting it is if you go into a little more depth. Right. I mean, all that's very true. It's spoken like a true art historian. Uh, so I want to just again, I want to paint in a couple of um, sure, just a couple more brushstrokes on the trial because there's a couple of cool things here. So he was sentenced. And from what I understand, he um, he entered a guilty plea. He gets sentenced, serves an amount of time and then requests to be let out early. And then they let him out is because he had already served time. Is that not is that not correct? Um, that 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 sounds that sounds right. The the short version is that that he wound up getting off because he had already been in prison enough that he had served his sentence. But the ba- the basic idea is that he got a slap on the wrist and yeah. he came out where they symbolically needed to sentence sentence him because he did do something illegal. But right. the Italian people, the judge, didn't really want to because he seemed like a good <laughs> right. guy. Yeah, he had had the best in mind. Yeah, that's what I love that because they, they have to they have to punish him. And then like, well, you know what? He's done. Isn't he done enough? I mean, yeah. God, for God's <laughs> sakes, he's a hero for crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, also, during the trial, a psychiatrist claimed that Perugia was not mentally competent, which I, I thought was interesting. And the trial was really about is it patriotism or profit? You know, yeah. is did he do this for the country or to make money, which, you know, it's still in some circles is an ongoing argument. Sure. And. Uh, one last little piece here, which, you know, I think is a reflection both of the time and of today, is that on the stand, Perugia claimed that he knew the Mona Lisa was stolen from books and information that he had read, uh, which is, you know, to say that misinformation is not a, a sole characteristic of the modern era. So uh, even happened, you know, a, a hundred years ago. Uh, so one th- I want to close. I'm going to close with a conspiracy theory uh, because I know how much you love them. And it's one that I (laughs) thought was really interesting in the book. But basically, uh, really quickly, there was this um, this theory that a man named Eduardo de uh, Valaferino 
wanted to Valfierno, thank you. Uh, any pronunciation, you just pop right in because I'm butchering it here. Uh, but that he commissioned this art theft to make, I mean, I said, I, I'm guessing to make the Mona Lisa available and also to give international headlines to raise the price. And then he was going to recreate a commission six high priced, highly, you know, very good forgeries. And that was the whole, that was the profit, uh, um, idea for all this, right? That was his his um, business model. That's what I'm looking for. Well, this is interesting because this story shows up in one place by a guy who has a dubious record. Yeah. But and, and this conspiracy theory still exists, I think, because it is so juicy. And I know you hate it, but let's quickly tell me um, how this came to be. Sure. So this, this is actually a really influential um, example of fake news coloring the way people think uh, real mm -hmm. history works. Yeah. So it's an article that came out in the 1930s um, by a journalist uh, using the loosest sense of the word named Carl Decker, who um, was writing for the Saturday Evening Post. And in that article, he claims that he met an Argentine count named Valfierno, who told him about how he had commissioned Perugia to steal the Mona Lisa in order to make multiple identical copies of it that he would then sell to stupid American millionaires. And each one would think that they had the stolen original, but they couldn't show it to anybody because it was stolen. And he was going to keep the original himself. And this was the master plan. And because of the fact that it won, it came out in, this was a magazine of record at the time. It was uh, an influential um, now, nowadays, we think of it because Norman Rockwell made the covers of it. Yeah. That's our association. But this was an important <laughs> right. magazine yeah. at the time. So it sounded legit. It was written as if it was journalism. And it was an eyewitness account wrote about, written about by the author. Um, it turns out he had made up a lot of his stories, unfortunately. And this was one of them. There's no evidence that this person, Valfierno, ever existed. Um, and uh, it doesn't come up at all in anything that Perugia himself said about um, uh, the theft, but it really colored the way people think about art theft and forgery. Right. And yeah. because forgery is one of the other things that I write about, it's interesting mm -hmm. how influential um, individual works of fiction, or in this case, a piece of what turned out to be fake news is, because many people around the world think that art theft is commissioned by um, aristocrats with crazy curly mustaches who are cackling in their <laughs> castles. And mm. that most art forgery involves copying existing works. And none of this is true historically, but so many people think it that, interestingly enough, it influences criminal activity. So we have fiction not only coloring the way the general public thinks, but coloring the way criminals think. And the fiction leads criminals to behave in ways that are in line with the fiction. And it makes the fiction sometimes a reality, which is totally mind-blowing. So criminals yeah. think that there are Argentine aristocrats out there mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. will buy stolen art, and they're mm -hmm. very confused when they don't find any because it's in the sort of <laughs> cultural oxygen because of right. movies and TV shows and, you know, dating back far enough, an article like this. Well, I will tell you, just in closing, and it's funny, I mean, that's true, Ouroboros, that's snake eating its own tail, really. Uh, but, you know, there are lots of, I, I'm, I have a couple of upcoming episodes on government programs that we only started because we thought the Russians were doing it, and the Russians only did it because they heard we were doing it. So, <laughs> I mean, I love this. This is great. So, I, you know, obviously, you are an expert in forgeries. Mona Lisa, you, you have a, a foundation that studies art theft. Um, how can people find you, find this book? I mean, you do a lot. Uh, there's got to be a resource for this. Um, sure. So you can visit noacharney.com. My organization is ARCA, the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art, which you can visit at artcrimeresearch.org. And you can actually study with us. We have founded the first academic program in the world in this subject, which runs every summer in Italy. Um, and another thing that you might find fun, I write um, scripts for TED videos. And there's mm. a very popular one about why the Mona Lisa is famous, which has a couple million views already. And that might be a kind of fun, short, small thing for your, your listeners to tune into. Um, but yeah, the book is Thefts of the Mona Lisa, the complete story of the world's most famous artwork. Um, and yeah, yeah, catch me wherever you can. I'd love to, to, to have you uh, read that and uh, hop oh, on to it. any of the various things I do. Social media. 
You just social media. Social handles? media, yeah. Um, social media handles. My Instagram is the only one I really like, and I pretty much only subscribe to burgers. I wish I were eating photos, <laughs> but it's um, at Slovenology. Why? Because um, I live in Slovenia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I'll make sure I have them up. Uh, you know, I'll make okay, sure that I have kind. everything. Uh, and of course, you can find this show if you're looking for those links, including the TED Talk links, which I was surprised are all cartoons, but I'm going to put links to them as well. They are they are really good. Uh, that's fascinatingnouns.com. And we are on social media on X, formerly Twitter, at Fascinating Noun, and on Facebook, at Fascinating Nouns. Uh, well, so I, I, this has been great. Thank you so much for this time. And we are going to get into a side story on Picasso. Check that out on a bonus episode on the feed but until then Noah thank you so much for all of this knowledge uh you are a wealth of it and may you be as famous as the Mona Lisa thank you so much for having me man it was a pleasure thank you and I want to thank everyone for listening have a good night fascinating nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me Daniel J Glenn the show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt the Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. and We even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. And speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.